All right, sound is speeding. We are recording. Cool. All right, let's begin. Either they don't know, don't show, I don't care about what's going on in the hood. Yes, what is up, everybody? Welcome to yet another edition of Adventures in Black Cinema. My name is Desmond Thorne. I am the host of the show, and I will be your film aficionado for the day. And it is always a pleasure to give you your passport to Black film, signed by me. Um, Other things that I do outside of this podcast are... Filmmaking. I am a filmmaker. I write, I direct, I produce, I do all of that. I'm also a film programmer at a film festival called New Fest, which is New York's LGBTQ film festival. We have been in the thick of doing some virtual Q&As these past couple weeks. Um, And they've been really great. It's been really awesome to connect with filmmakers over work that I've been watching for months and months and months and really tell them just like how amazing that their work is. It's one of my favorite parts of the Q&A's to tell these filmmakers how much I appreciate their work and just how dope and skillful that it is. Uh, And this week's episode is called Adventures in Picket Lines and Production Design, and we will be getting into the nitty-gritty of the film Sorry to Bother You. Uh, But first, speaking of trying to put you onto things, let's do a little trust and believe, shall we? So, Trust and Believe is a segment that I will do on the show every once in a while, every once in a blue moon, um, where I put you on to a film, a Black film that I consider to be a hidden gem, a film that really, truly, in many ways, is not as popular as it should be for reasons of accessibility, um, etc., etc., etc. So, this week's... Trust and Believe is a documentary called Ethnic Notions, directed by prolific filmmaker Marlon T. Riggs, and this film was released in 1986. So I fucking loved this movie. It's really a lot about how uh, racist... African-American stereotypes in the media, in art, in iconography have been so damaging and so dangerous for us for centuries. I mean, it all kind of starts out in slavery, of course, uh, where there are all these, you know, advertisements and art and iconography of these stereotypes that have uh, since become known as the Mammy the Sambo, Jim Crow, 
And uh, these are stereotypes that were made to make white people believe essentially that um, black people were totally fine and happy and, you know, all Gucci with slavery. These are all very, um, very joyful depictions mostly that we're talking about, but still at the same time, very ignorant, very stupid Um, And then, you know, as slavery was abolished, the stereotypes became more violent and angry. You know, we start to get the Piccaninny, we start to get the Gollywog, we start to get the Mandingo, the Jezebel, the Sapphire. And these are all uh, Black stereotypes that are very dangerous, very violent, very angry. You know, one of the first films, I think maybe the the first feature film, um, or at least one of the first, is a film called The Birth of a Nation. And... And there is a lot of that in that. And that essentially, you know, caused people to believe that we are very dangerous and very violent and very vengeful. And like um, that has pervaded over time. And these stereotypes are still very present, including like just the very recently changed images of Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima. Like, these are all stereotypes that have perpetuated for decades, hundreds and hundreds of years. And so that's what this documentary is about. We get... um a lot of viewpoints from people who study this, who are professionals. We hear a lot of uh, voiceover from books and literature. D is for Daniel, who tends to the doll. He took care of Massa way back for the war. F is for Felix, who won't do no work. He's lazy and shiftless and ready to shirk. Z is for Zonia, chunky and small, but here come the missus, so I guess this am I. Um, and we get dropped into the history of all this, and also a lot in cartoons. I remember very specifically when I was a kid, you know, my dad would get us these VHS tapes that are like, you know, 50 greatest cartoons, 100 greatest cartoons, and these are often at like department stores or just like wherever you can find them. And there are all these, you know, on each of these VHS is at least one or two of those old Looney Tunes cartoons that are racist as all fuck. I'm coming, Master Elmer. Tote that barge, lift that bell. Yaffa, yaffa. And you know, there's a lot of erasure of those now. And I think it, it's also very important to have those available to study so that we can, you know, make things like ethnic notions like this documentary, like the film Bamboozled, directed by Spike Lee, you know, like Dear White People. Because I think these are things that need to be taught to combat these uh, stereotypes and these ways of thinking that have been so dangerous for us for centuries and centuries. Um, Yeah, I think this shit needs to be taught in schools. It needs to be studied. I think there's a lot of people who go around seeing these stereotypes in various ways and not being aware of them and not being aware of how fucking dangerous they are and where they stem from. So I would definitely, definitely, definitely recommend this documentary. It, um, you know, displays all of this very succinctly in under an hour, and it is incredible, and it makes you really feel like as a Black 
person uh, very accurately that you are not bugging when you feel some type of way about seeing these images uh, portrayed in various ways, even today. So definitely check out Ethnic Notions. And this film is available to stream right now on the Criterion channel. You are here for one reason, one reason only. So let's get into the nitty gritty of Sorry to Bother You. So this was a film directed by Boots Riley, who is a musician. And um, this film was released in 2018. Uh, A little summary if you have not seen the film. This wild film tells the story of a young man named Cassius Green, played by Lakeith Stanfield, who becomes a caller for a telemarketing company called Regal View. At first, he's not very successful at this mundane job until an older co-worker, played by Danny Glover, tells him that he'll make more sales if he uses his white voice on the phone with customers. Let me give you a tip. Use your white voice. Man, I ain't got no white voice. Oh, come on, you know what I mean. You have a white voice in there, you can use it. It's like when you pulled over by the police. Oh, no, I just use my regular voice when that happens. I just say, back the fuck up off the car and don't nobody oh, get out. Right, man, I'm just trying to give you some game. You want to make some money here? Then read the script with a white voice. When people say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why ain't it helping me out? Well, you don't talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. I'm talking about the real deal. Like this young man. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? Soon, Cassius gets promoted to the job of a power caller and uses his white voice to sell slave labor to other big companies under the guise of a company called Worry Free. This film also stars Tessa Thompson, who plays Cassius's girlfriend named Detroit. Uh, we have Jermaine Fowler in here as Cassius's best friend. We have Stephen Yun, who is just one of the sexiest men who has ever, ever, ever lived on this earth. He plays a character named Squeeze, who is a very big part of the picket lines aspect of this film. We have Army Hammer, who essentially plays like the mastermind behind Worry Free. Caper Lant, one of the funniest white women living on this planet, uh, plays one of the bosses at Regal View. And uh, Omari Hardwick is in this film as a mysterious guy who works in the power caller sect. And we have David Cross as Cassius's white voice and Patton Oswalt as Omari Hardwick's white voice. Uh, Those guys are super funny. One of my favorite parts of this movie is, you know, Cassius has become a power caller. So he's using his white voice pretty constantly. So they're having this big party. There's lots of champagne flowing, all this stuff like that. And Cassius has this bottle of champagne that he shakes up. And in David Cross's voice, he says, Some for the homies and some for me! Which I just think is so fucking hilarious. And I think that those are the moments where the white voice is used best. Alrighty, so a few fun facts about Sorry to Bother You. Uh, Lily James plays Tessa Thompson's white voice, and 
They starred in Little Woods together, which is a super, super fun fact because we just did Little Woods on the show a few weeks ago. So it was such a fun thing to see this a second time and to recognize these two like adopted sisters who played in a movie together, I think maybe a year after this, were uh, each other's kind of counterpart in this movie for about a scene. Uh, Second fun fact is that Donald Glover was originally cast as Cassius, the lead in this movie, but had shooting conflicts with the film Solo, A Star Wars Story, in which he played Lando Calrissian. So Donald suggested Lakeith for the role. They had worked on Atlanta together, so they knew each other. And I must say, as interesting as it would have been to see Donald play this role, I think Lakeith there's a certain energy about him, a certain weirdness that just really, really works for Cassius super well. And um, I think also because of the way he's built, he's so skinny to see this like white voice coming out of him. There's just something that adds the comedy of that. And again, kind of like this like sulky nature that he has as Cassius in the beginning really works and uh, really works to show his kind of... Um, growth and assimilation toward the end. So I think Lakeith is, I think this worked out for the best. Uh, Last fun fact is that this film was shot in 28 days, which is quite a feat. I mean, when you're shooting a film that has so many moving parts, such as this one, like literally moving parts, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the production design in this film, uh, that's quite fast, but also not, you know, not weird in terms of independent films. You know, independent films in terms of funding don't get a ton of money. And that also means they don't get a ton of time to do what they have to do. And there's also quite a few people in this movie that have busy schedules, you know, Lakeith being one of them, Tessa being another. Pretty much everyone in this movie is like booked and busy. So I'm sure that was an aspect of it as well. And speaking of independent films, something that always strikes me when I'm watching an indie film and something that struck me while I was watching this film again for the podcast is that you will see so many names of production companies and different funders and different factions that helped bring this movie together ultimately at the end of the day. At the beginning of this movie, you see like five different production companies, studios, funders at the beginning of this movie that helped to make this movie possible rather than when you see like a big budget movie, what you'll mainly see is like the studio logo. And then sometimes they just go straight into it or you'll see the studio logo, a big production company, and that's it. Um, Very big difference for a lot of uh, independent films and a lot of international films. A lot more help, care, and often love will go into these films. And you'll see a barrage of names in the beginning and a barrage of logos. So my first experience with this movie was actually seeing it in theaters uh, when it came out. I saw it with my brother at the AMC Lincoln Square Movie Theater on the Upper West Side. And let's just take a brief pause for the movie theaters.
my gosh, it is, it's, you know, it's really taken a toll on movie theaters. And by it, I mean a little thing called COVID-19. But, you know, this really could have been avoided like many other things if there had been just more care taken place initially by the government and by peoples in power. Like, it really did not have to be this way, but this is the way it is. We are seeing a lot of theater closures in the United States. Theaters are still not open in New York City, and it's because they're not safe yet. But like I said... We live in a world in which it could have been safe by now had certain precautions been taken on time. Um, But yeah, saw this movie in movie theaters with my brother back in the day. You know, I heard about this film from a friend who worked at Sundance. Um, and, and they told me that it was one of their favorite movies that they saw at the festival that year, which would have been the 2018 year. And, um, you know, when I saw the Sundance lineup, this one caught my eye because pretty much everything that's black that's in the Sundance lineup will catch my eye. And, um, you know, just a very striking photograph of Lakeith with his, uh, hairdo for this movie, which is very interesting. It's, um, Um, almost like a fro, almost like braids, some combination of the two. Um, And then you see Tessa next to him with this really cool, like pink ombre hair. And they're looking at something like they, you know, like it's a disaster in a way. And then I see the log line and I see, you know, taking place in an alternate uh, Oakland, California. And uh, I was just into that. I was into the trailer, and so was my brother. So we went to this afternoon screening at the AMC Lincoln Square. And, you know, the theater was well attended for an indie movie um, that was definitely going to be weird no matter how you slice it. And um, uh, a lot of people came through for an afternoon screening of this movie. And I feel like at the end of the movie, we all in the audience had the same reaction, which was... What the fuck did we just watch? And we had various reactions in terms of like how much we liked it. But I will say, I think something that everyone can agree on when seeing this movie is that the production design is amazing. So let's get into the production design aspect of Sorry to Bother You. So I think um, production design is something that I definitely notice a lot when I see films. I think production design element really brings everything together with the costumes and with the lighting. We've definitely talked about this in the Rafiki episode, and we're talking about the color schemes that that director used to uh, bring certain messages forth. And I think uh, what the production designer for Sorry to Bother You does is really bring you fully into this world. And I think especially when you're dealing with something that is dealing in like magical realism and is dealing in like surrealism and and absurdism, this kind of world building that goes beyond what's happening in the script is super important. Um, 
I think that you can tell in a lot of ways that this film is directed by a musician, even if you didn't know that. There is a certain rhythm and like pizzazz in the design in terms of the colors. The colors have a nice pop to them throughout for the most part. And um, there is a kind of lovely rhythm to this movie. It doesn't ever really feel overlong, though it is uh, almost two hours, um, because I think it just kind of goes, and I think Boots is very aware of that rhythm throughout, and I think in the same way um, with, you know, designing a world for an album and doing a lot of album art and such like that, you can really see that come through in the production design, which is super, super flawless. There is something that um, in terms of production design in this movie and in world building of this movie that I wish they kind of trusted more was how dope it was and how much it conveyed without them having to say anything about it because they talk about it a lot. And... That's something that I like to be aware of in my writing when I'm doing something that deals in magical realism and surrealism. I think everyone should just live in the world and buy into the world and not necessarily comment on things. Um, Tessa Thompson has these really cool earrings all throughout the film. You know, uh, they have really fun, interesting messages on them. And there's also a set of earrings that she has that are, I believe, a man sitting in an electric chair. And every single time that she's wearing these cool earrings someone says something about them and I wish that there had just been enough trust and I understand you know this is Boots Riley's first film um but I wish there had been enough trust where they do these kind of like slow zooms into her earrings without anyone saying anything about them that could have added another layer of comedy that he does use in other parts of it Um, with some of this iconography and some ads that you see for a second or see in the background that make no fucking sense. But because they make no sense and they're in this world, they're really funny. So I think that that's something that could have, you know, been adjusted, I guess, if I were to give a couple of notes. Um, But the office scenes in which... Cassius is on the phone, you know, doing his thing uh, as a new caller. What happens is that his desk and his call center that he's in, his little cubicle, will drop into someone's house that he's calling, which I think is a very fun and incredible convention. You know, it just conveys so much so easily, so quickly, and so funnily. I don't know if that's a word that I just said, but it's fucking funny. (laughs) And it's funny as he moves up as well. I mean, there's a scene where you see him in a bathroom with this like huge um, business exec in Japan. And he's talking to him kind of like face to face doing this like intense business deal. And Cassius turns on the bidet for him while he's talking to him and making this deal. It's so funny. And again, it's not over explained. It's just a really cool convention of the world. Um, I think one of my favorite parts in the film, um, in terms of production design and really in terms of anything, 
is when Cassius moves up as a power caller, um, you see the apartment, quote unquote, that he lives in with Detroit, which is actually um, his uncle's garage. You see elements of that apartment change and grow into the new apartment that he's staying in that he can now afford as a big time power caller. So you see things like his little bed. You see these folds from his little bed expand into a larger bed. You see like a television grow out of his nightstand. You literally see the room change in front of your eyes, like a cool like theater set piece. And that's something that I would have loved to have seen even more throughout the film. Um, Again, just a really cool convention that displays so much in a very cool and different and unique way. And it's really interesting, too, in terms of these color schemes that I was talking about in this production design. They are very colorful, lots of pops of color, lots of bright colors, lots of like zany colors and designs and stuff. In the first part of the movie, when Cassius is in the office and when Cassius is living his normal life. But as he moves up to become a power caller, another smart thing that they do to convey a message in this movie is that they take the color out of it. Because what is happening is that Cassius is assimilating to whiteness by using his white voice and moving up the ranks to sell slave labor. So in his new apartment, it is all white. Every single thing except for I think the TV is white. The bed is white. The bedding is white. The um, nightstands, the lamps, the walls, the ceilings, everything in that apartment is white. And the same thing with the office that he works in as he moves up to be a power caller. It's very like glass based and very angular and again, very white. So really, really smart shit here. And especially when Again, we're dealing in magical realism and surrealism. Production design is a place where you can have so much fun. And that's something that I love to have fun with when I'm um, writing my projects. I really do think about how each place will look in terms of the design, in terms of the build, in terms of the set dressing, and again, how these things work in conjunction with the story and with the other elements of design. Um, Another really super cool thing that Boots does in terms of the design in this movie is that in the beginning, uh, Cassius is in the club with his best friend played by Jermaine Fowler. And uh, they discover that there is, or, you know, they notice that in the back, there's this kind of um, curtained off, roped off section, the VIP section. And, um, you know, Cassius says, I'm going to, I'm fuck it. I'm just going to go back there. I'm just going to go back there and, you know, do my thing. And so he goes back there and it's very squished space. It's very small. It is wall to wall with people. Um, and he gets his drink spilled on him and he has a terrible fucking time in there. But when he comes out, Jermaine Fowler asks, he's like, yo, how was it back there? And Cassius says, that was some baller shit back there. And like, pretend like he loved it and what's 
a great tie-in is that the design of that VIP lounge is pretty much the same exact design of the VIP elevator that Cassius gets to ride upstairs now as a power caller. Now, I love that because it's interesting kind of like foreshadowing, you know, it's like forecasting a little bit about what's going to happen about Cassius when he moves up to be a power caller to go to that VIP space in the world as he assimilates. He is going to tell everybody that it's baller shit. He's going to try to make himself believe that he likes the place he's at now, that he likes this kind of like exclusive life that he's in, but he won't. He won't like it, just like he didn't like that VIP section. So these designs are very similar in that they are based in like red curtains and these kind of golden lights. And yeah, I think... This was the first time that I actually noticed that. And I thought that that was so fucking smart. So, you know, talking about uh, assimilation and going into the VIP, let's talk a little bit about these picket lines and a little bit about this assimilation. The idea of protest is a very big one in this film, for sure. I mean, the first time you really see it is you see that, you know, worry-free is this faction that's in the world. And worry-free is this kind of faction that's telling you, you know, come work in a place where you also live and you will, you know, will give you food and shit and um, it's going to be lit. And they try to really convince you with these commercials that this is a workplace where you'll be taken care of and it's a good place for your families and shit. And essentially, you know, what does that sound like? That sounds like slavery. That sounds like slave labor. And that's something that you see get revealed over the course of the film. And so I feel like everyone's fighting oppression in different ways. There is this group called the Left Eye Bandits, I think, um, that are going hard against Worry Free in various ways. And um, Cassius's girlfriend, Detroit, played by Tessa Thompson, is revealed to be one of the major people behind that faction. Um, another protest kind of picket line thing that's very literal in this film is the fact that Squeeze, played by the sexy Mr. Stephen Ian, he has an idea very early on to unionize and to fight back against Regal View for the shitty wages that they are paying all of their callers. So Squeeze's picket line basically lasts throughout the entire movie. And obviously something that's very big and uh, controversial is Cassius crossing that picket line to get to work as a power caller. So kind of like working against his friends, which is a very, very big source of conflict in this movie. And then eventually we do get Cassius kind of rebelling as well um, when Cassius finds out the truth, which is where the movie turns left, y'all. If you have not seen this movie, I am so sorry. I'm about to spoil something huge for you. But Cassius goes to this party 
at Army Hammer's house, who, like I said, runs the whole worry-free thing. And he has an idea to make worry-free even more slave labor than it already is, is that he is going to turn people into half humans, half horses. Yes, you heard me right. He's turning people into half human, half horses so that they can literally basically be workhorses and you don't have to treat them like humans because they technically aren't. So this is where the movie turns left, but it is, you know, a a chance for Cassius to be, uh, to, uh, realign himself with the rebellious nature that is in him in the beginning of the movie and to realign himself with values that actually matter to him and to his people. So, you know, he starts to join the picket line and then he, you know, uh, makes his own plan with the picket line to kind of take down worry free. And he starts spreading the word about, um, uh, the fact that army hammer is turning people into literal work horses and you know um every time i see this movie i do try to understand the symbolic natures of everything um a lot more every single time because i will say as good as this movie is in so many ways you know i've seen the movie at this point twice and i've also read the screenplay i think that there are so many good ideas and there are also kind of like too many good ideas in a way um but you know, the things that I did get from it a lot this time um, were, and I think this is probably because we're going through this right now in such a big way, is like, were these, you know, ideas of having picket lines and having protests and people making their voices heard, no matter like, how crazy and upside down that the world is that they live in. Um, Of course, coming through very strong is, you know, Cassius's assimilation to whiteness um, using his white voice. Again, something I wish that they didn't necessarily call out quite so much in the movie. Um, I understand, you know, calling it out a couple of times, but I don't know, they talk about it a lot. Um, the assimilation to whiteness by not only using his white voice, but you do have these scenes where, you know, before he becomes a power caller, Cassius is all of a sudden like super chummy with the angry white boss who is nuts um, in the office, as well as like Kate Berlant and the other big boss who works in the Regal View section. And then you see his assimilation to whiteness in a lot of ways by, again, those really cool things in the production design, him just like uh, turning his back on his friends um, and kind of saying that, you know, this life of exclusivity, this life of uh, luxury, this life of, you know, what using my white voice has gotten me is so much better than my life was before. But I mean, of course, it's actually not. And I think that's such a cool way to display something like assimilation. You know, it's something that people, you know, we talk about it a lot in certain ways, but I think this film displays it in a really cool way by using something like capitalism and the uh, idea of working in labor as the background for it. Um, 
Yeah, I th- it makes me think of any time in my life where I have like assimilated or like code switched or anything. And I definitely think that because I grew up how I grew up, um, you know, my parents always having tons of black art, black books, black movies, black music, black iconography around us, and that being very consistent in my family at large, I never really wanted to assimilate to whiteness. That never really seemed like a goal of mine. I think also because my upbringing is so rooted in Black history and African history. I mean, my parents grew up during the civil rights movement of the 60s. They were fucking uh, at least had to be like in their teens, actually. They were in like middle school and high school when this was happening. So they were in the thick of it. Like there was never any kind of wanting to assimilate to whiteness. And there was such a, again, wonderful balance in my neighborhood of black families and white families. The only thing I maybe wanted to do was like, In fifth grade, uh, one of my best friends uh, was Jewish. Her name was Sophie. And I got to go over her house for a couple of the holidays that were happening, a couple of the Jewish holidays. And Hanukkah especially intrigued me. You know, seven days of presents. You get more presents. You get potato latkes with applesauce. You get orders. You get all of this. And, you know, I said to my mom at the time, I was like, yo, ma, can I be can I be Jewish? And she was like, you know, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And the funny thing about that is that, like, that's not even a moment where I wanted to assimilate to whiteness. I just wanted to be Jewish so I can get more presents and some fucking potato latkes. And being Jewish, you can be Jewish and black. That has nothing to do with assimilating to any kind of like power or wants or luxury. Um, So that feels pretty good. That feels pretty good to watch this movie and observe this and see that as a truth that a lot of other people have experienced, a very important truth, including fucking Terry Crews' asses in this fucking movie. I wasn't going to mention him, but talking about assimilating to whiteness, you can't leave fucking Terry Crews out of the conversation now, can you? You can't. You burnt. Um... So, yeah, I mean, I think that idea that is displayed in this movie is displayed in such a cool way. And in conclusion, I think this movie is such a worthy entry into the black and weird canon. If you know me, you know I like my shit black and weird. That is a place that I aspire to be as a creator Um, I think that there are so many things happening now that fit that bill and so many things from the 70s and 80s that fit that bill. And I just want more and more and more of it. You know, I love Boots's uh, filmmaking sensibility. I love that he brings so much of himself as a musician into the film. And I'm excited to see where he goes and continues to go after this as a filmmaker. Um, I think there is, uh, speaking of him being a musician, There's really good music in here from the group that he is in, as well as a score from a group that I really like called Tune Yards. Um, You know, once you know Tune Yards, you can hear their influence anywhere. You just hear all these like, 
all these little like ooh poppy uh and not pop in terms of genre but pop in terms of like sound the actual sound of a popping um you get attuned to hearing some Meryl Garbus who is the lead singer of Tune Yards you can begin to hear her influence anywhere once you know that sound Um, and I want to see more and more shit that's like black and surrealist, black magical realism. I just want more and more and more of it. Um, and this film is now streaming on Hulu, so check it out. All my life I had to fight. The time has come, the Walrus said, for the You Better Act Award. If you don't know, this is an award that I give out every week to a actor who is black, who is acting their ass off, who is giving us everything and giving us even more than what we deserve from a performance. So this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drumroll please, Brian Tyree Henry in Atlanta. If you are not watching Atlanta, I must say, first of all, you are doing life wrong. Atlanta is also streaming on Hulu. Check out Atlanta. And I am constantly blown away by Brian Tyree Henry's work on this show. He plays Paperboy. And if you don't know what the fuck Atlanta is about, again, just watch the fucking show. Um... It's hard to describe because it does, you know, change so often in such a cool and dynamic way. Definitely falls into the black and weird shit category. Um, But the basic plot and kind of through line of Atlanta is that Donald Glover, a.k.a. Childish Gambino, um, he plays a character named Earn who wants to be his cousin's manager. His cousin is a rapper and his cousin's rap name is Paperboy. Again, bringing it back full circle to Brian Tyree Henry, who plays Paperboy. Lakeith Stanfield is also in this show as uh, Paperboy's BFF Darius. Um, So the way that Brian Tyree Henry literally like switches up his energy completely to play this character is absolutely astounding. I want you to watch both seasons of Atlanta, watch his work in other movies, including Widows, uh, If Beale Street Could Talk, and then watch Brian Tyree Henry in an interview and you will be amazed. He doesn't do this like fucking character actory thing that a lot of people do. He doesn't change his um, voice or his um, body in such a big way, like, you know, Meryl Streep playing the witch in Into the Woods. It's not anything like that. It's basically just, like I said, it's a complete shift in energy. The way that he is as Paperboy, you would believe that's how he is in real life, and he's not at all. It is um, quite astounding how natural that he continues to be in this performance. 
um, while changing so many aspects of how he carries himself as a person. And this is these fucking Yale actors, man. These Yale school of drama actors, especially the black ones. We're talking Lupita Nyong'o. We talking uh, Angela Bassett. We're talking Courtney B. Vance. These are all the top of their game fucking actors. And uh, they must teach them well over there because all of them are incredible. Oh, fucking Winston Duke is also from Yale. Shit. Yeah, I mean, they're just a good group of actors. And Brian Tyree Henry is one of my faves. And he seems like a really nice guy. Like, I want to hang out with him. I want to be his friend. Um, I want to also be his lover. There's just so many things that I want to be to you, Brian. Um, so call me, beat me, if you want to reach me. Um, as I said... Atlanta is now streaming on Hulu. Check it out. If you have not, you are missing out on life if you haven't watched Atlanta. All right. In closing, some food for thought. Has there ever been anything in your work environment that you wanted to rebel against? Hit us up on SFB Society. Comment on the post on our Instagram at Adventures in Black Cinema. Let me know, especially in this time when we aren't working, many of us. I want to know if there has been any kind of reflection that you've done about things you didn't fuck with at your work environment that you can now have some space to think about and address at this point. Um, Thank you, per usual, to our audio engineer, Matt Mozzarella, our producer, Angie, our executive producer, Miss Amanda Seals. And next week, we will be getting into the nitty gritty of the documentary Paris is Burning with filmmaker Elegance Bratton and film producer Chester Aljournal. These two are partners in life and partners in crime in terms of filmmaking, and they also have experience in the Vogue and ballroom scene. So I'm very excited to talk to them about this movie. In the meantime, stay safe, stay black, stay blessed, and I'll see y'all next week.